Hello, Hamish. <laughs> Hamish hides in the corner because he has shyness issues. <laughs> Hello. In the first service, he had the headphones on listening to Megadeth plays Neil Diamond hits. <laughs> now he's doing a little dancing queen with the headphones. How embarrassing. Never be on a stage anywhere near me. The musicians cleared out because they knew I'd pick on them. You need to keep giving so we can finish the drummer's house. <laughs> We're believing God for the ensuite upstairs, the twin bedrooms, triple car garage, room for a boat. People are actually excited about that. <laughs> Someone over there is writing it down. Room for a boat. Five strings? No, four. Father, bless the bass player with another string. <laughs> are you well this morning? Yeah. Five people are well. Are you well this morning? Yeah. Great. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank you for inviting us to be in the great city of Cambridge. As you said, I come from another university town which shall remain nameless. It also has a boat team, but we won't go there. Lord, we thank you this morning that you're in this place because you came with us. We acknowledge that though we are just creatures of dust, you breathed into us a breath of life. You gave us a spirit. And then because of what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, you sent your spirit to live in ours so that we could know Christ and make him known and do the one thing that the C3 church really exists for and that is to make God's name great in our generation, to make God famous in our time. Don't let this messenger get in the way of the message this morning. Help me just to be a vehicle through which you speak. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. In Daniel 1, verse 3 of the Bible, Then the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome. Do we have any handsome young men in the house today? No? Okay. <laughs> well informed. I won't ask about that one. Quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from his own table and they were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, to Azariah Abednego. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that in the past two years, the world has experienced mass migration on a scale we hadn't seen since the end of World War II. Something like 244 million people today live outside their country of birth. Most are economic migrants looking for better opportunities for work and family, but a growing number are asylum seekers and refugees. They're fleeing crises of one form or another somewhere in the world, and that's not really surprising when you consider that 82% of the 
of the world's combined wealth is controlled and owned by about 8% of its population. And in the age of Instagram and Snapchat, it's not hard for people to see photographs of life on the other side of the tracks and say, I'd like some of that action, thank you very much. But perhaps the most miserable of all forms of migration is what we call forced evacuation, where whole communities are uprooted from their homes, often by violent force, and carried off, often far away from everything they hold dear. And sadly, as is often the case, it seems some things never change in human history. Because two and a half thousand years ago, another forced mass evacuation in the center of the ancient world gave birth to the story we've just read from, the biblical story of the prophet Daniel. Even as a young man, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was known as a skilled soldier. He was a cunning strategist. And as he moved across the ancient world, annexing one nation after another, he didn't even bother to squash or quench the nationalistic spirit of the nations he subjugated, because he knew that that would lead to rebellion further down the line. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar adopted a very subtle and, I think, much more effective tactic that I call alienate to integrate. As he swept through the Middle East, he would kill off kings, put puppet governors in their place, and then shrewdly select the cream of the elites of each society, like Daniel and his friends, carry them off to Babylon and put them through a process of mass re-education, reprogramming. His strategy was to alienate people from their roots, from everything that determined what they were, and integrate them into a different system of identity of his own devising. Now today we see great cities all over the world. Many of you I'm sure have been to some of the great cities of the world. 54% of the world now lives in cities. Every week we add three million people to the cities of the world. The Chinese government expects in the next 30 years 260 million people to move into cities that don't even exist yet, but are being planned today. So we have lots of great cities today, but in the sixth century, and 7th century BC, Daniel's time, there was only one megacity at this point in time, and it was called Babylon. And Babylonians were very proud of their culture. And I don't have time today, but another time we could talk about the similarities between Babylon's culture and our culture today. It was a very aesthetic culture. My background is in architecture many years ago, and these were people devoted to quality architecture and design. They were a learned culture. They had lots of libraries with books drawn from all over the ancient world. They were a spiritual culture. There's a difference, of course, if you're a Christian, between godly and spiritual. You can be spiritual without really knowing the God of the Bible and knowing what Jesus has done for us to give us a relationship with God. But the name Babylon means gateway to the gods. This was the nation that gave us the pseudoscience of astrology. In the Bible, though, Babylon is much more than a city. As a city, it was destroyed centuries ago in line with Bible prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. So the city doesn't exist in the way that it did in the ancient world. And yet we see in the Bible Babylon re-emerging at the end of time, just before Jesus returns to set up his kingdom in its physical form on earth. It's not the physical Babylon, though, that is re-emerging. It's the system that Babylon represents. 
And those of you who read the Bible a lot, and hopefully there's a few here today, I'm sure there is, if you look at the New Testament, you see Babylon and Rome used interchangeably to describe any world system of either government or thinking that doesn't have Christ at its center. Any world empire or attempt at world empire or attempt at world thinking that doesn't have Christ at its center and recognize him as the rightful king. Now, as a social futurist, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I do not believe that Christians are meant to look for the boogeyman under the bed. In fact, the Bible says in Luke 21, when talking about the end times, in the words of Jesus, when these things begin to come to pass, when you see these signs of the times, look up because your redemption is near. It's not my business to worry about who the Antichrist is. So, you know, in parts of the world, there are whole conferences now of Christians that just try to figure out who the Antichrist is. I've been around long enough, Steve, to remember when it was Henry Kissinger in the 70s. In the 90s, it was Bill Clinton for some people. Today, for some people, it's Hillary, but for even more, it might be Donald. We don't know who the Antichrist is. It's not our business to know. Our business is to look for the real Christ, not the fake. We are to look up his, our redemption draws. I'm not paranoid about the future. You can't really be a futurist and be paranoid. But I don't think it stretches the bounds of believability too much, my friends, to suggest that Babylon as a system of thinking is alive and well today. And Babylon's strategy is the same today as it was in Daniel's time. Now, can I just be clear with you? Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says, and it's addressed to people like Daniel going into Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city into which I am sending you as exiles and pray on its behalf. For in seeking its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, this is an incredible thing for the Bible to say. How many know that Jesus... And God often demands things that are not easy. Hello. He says, love the city that I'm sending you to. You won't have any rights. You're a refugee stripped of all rights. But I want you to seek the welfare of the city because in seeking its welfare, you will find your welfare. We are called today to seek the welfare of Cambridge. Do you believe that? Not to criticize Cambridge, not to find everything that's wrong with it, but to find the things that may reflect the nature and character of God and redig those wells of Abraham. To find the things that are buried under layers of cultural whatever and reclaim them and redeem them because they can be used to glorify God. Today, coming here, we pass Jesus green. Now, of course, many people in the UK think today that Christ was Jesus' second name. So that's going to be very confusing to them. Jesus Christ, this is Jesus Green. Who is Jesus Green? It's very obvious in Cambridge that you have a Christian heritage somewhere underlying the whole thing. Our job is to reclaim that and redeem that and use those things that will honor God. We seek the welfare. But if you're going to seek the welfare of the city, you have to understand how the city would influence you if you let it. You see, one way or the other, influence will flow. Either you are the influencer or you're influenced. That's the way it is. And the very first command God gave us in Genesis 1 was to have influence. Did you know that? 
The first commandment wasn't to love people. The first commandment wasn't to give. The first commandment wasn't to find other Christians and hang out with them. That's important. All of those are important. The first commandment was to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And dominion doesn't mean domination. It means loving stewardship as a king who loves his people might look after them. This is why so many ecological movements have started within the Christian church in British history. The Bible says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and everyone who dwells in it. God is not just interested in church on Sunday, ladies and gentlemen. He's interested in what you do on Monday. In fact, he's more interested in that. You come to church to be equipped for that. I was sitting in the Institute of Directors in Pall Mall, London last year with a young man who is a very gifted young entrepreneur. I love entrepreneurs. We have an event for them in a few weeks' time, and it's going to be great. I love entrepreneurs, innovators, people who break the mold, people who look for the exception, not the norm. I love it. This young man sat across from me. He's American. He worked for Google and has now gone out on his own. And he said, Mel, I just want every business I start from this point in time to be a a resource for the kingdom. I I, I want to make enough money so I can resource the kingdom and the church. And I felt just God speak to me in that moment. I looked at him and I said to him, that's not what you want and it's not what God wants either. What do you mean? God doesn't want your business to be a resource for the kingdom of God. He wants your business to be an expression of the kingdom of God. And that changes everything. The way you treat your clients, to express the headship of Christ. Ephesians 1, Christ is the head of all things, including business, including media, including education. See, you're called, I'm called, 99% of us are not called to pastor a church. I don't pastor a church. And I'm kind of glad at that at the moment because, because I know what it's like to feel called to other things. And most of us here today are called to other things. You're as called as your pastor is. Do you believe that? You're called to be in there and express the headship of Christ, not by wearing bumper stickers with fishes on them, as we used to do a few years ago. People just think you're interested in fishing. (laughs) But to express in the way we treat our clients, the way we pay our taxes, the 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 way we design products and services that meet needs. Either we have influence in our Babylon or our Babylon has influence on us. That's the choice Daniel had to make in Daniel chapter 1. And there were several things that Nebuchadnezzar tried to strip from these young men that were the core of their identity. I want to give you three of them right now really quickly and a couple more tonight if you come back tonight. And I hope you do because I don't like empty chairs. It's very lonely here without you. (laughs) I was just about to sing the blues but I thought, no, I, I won't do that. The spirit of muddy waters just comes on me. I can't help it sometimes. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar stripped away was their literature. They were to be schooled, it says, in the literature of the Babylonians. Now here we're not talking just about what they knew and the books they read. For Babylon, it's wider than that. They were being stripped of the way they learned, how they came to new ideas, how they engaged with new ideas as people in covenant relationship with God in Israel, it was being changed to a new way of engaging with ideas under Babylon. Today there are two things that we base our thinking on, that we, we use to engage with new ideas. The first is education. How many here believe in education? Twelve. <laughs> how many, <laughs> come on, how many believe in education? Now, 
This is not just for those who've got a degree. This is not intended for that. This is for all of us because street smarts often are just as important, if not more so, than book smarts. The school of life is a very important school. Some of the people I've learned most from have not been to university for as long as I went, but they knew more than I did. Education is important. I just come back from a two-week tour of South Africa, speaking to six universities, heads of mining, two summits involving politicians, CNBC Africa, two great churches. I love Africa. I love South Africa. I've been going for 26 years. And I have to tell you that in nations like South Africa today, they celebrate leaders like Mandela who believe in education. Mandela said it's one of the key ways we change the world. It's important to a Christian to use the mind. Did you know that? Well, of course you did. You live in Cambridge. <laughs> Do you know that thinking is part of Jesus' great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I dare to suggest to you that if we had more Christians in Britain who used their minds, we'd have more Christians in Britain. What does it mean to love God with your mind? I was telling people in the first service, I believe it means something like, what we used to say in the old English wedding vows, when we used to marry old English people. <laughs> One of the vows was, with my body I thee worship. Now that just doesn't make a lot of sense today. It sounds Shakespearean. With my body I thee worship. It's like something out of Hamlet, you know. What does it mean? It means one partner saying to the other, I want my body to bring pleasure to you in this relationship. And I want it to be productive for you in terms of family. I believe that's what it means to love God with your mind. Say, Father, not just what I think, but the way I think. I want it to be productive for you, to extend the kingdom, and I want it to bring you pleasure. When the Bible says that God wants to renew your mind in Romans 12 too, the word that's used there in Greek is renovate. Has anybody here ever renovated a house? That's what God wants to do to our minds constantly. He wants to get in, knock walls, where there, put walls where there were no walls, shut off some bad stuff. He wants to knock some windows in where there were no windows and let some light in. He wants to rearrange the furniture of the mind so that my thinking is productive for the kingdom of God. And do you know it's honouring to God when we think and have innovative solutions to problems? I believe the church of Jesus Christ in this age will become a hub of innovation in its own right. Not creativity, because we're already good at that. Look around you. You're sitting in a very creatively designed building. With very, you've heard very creative music. Wouldn't the band good today? Very snarky puppy. Really good music. Only musicians know who that is. Wonderful music. This is great creativity, but it's not innovation. Ideas are just ideas until they consistently meet human needs. Then they're innovation. This is creativity, but this is innovation. It solved a need consistently. You're sitting on an innovation. It doesn't look very creative, but it's an innovation that has met a need. I believe the church needs to become 
not just a house of creativity now, but a house of innovation, where people say in the community of Cambridge, hey, if you want the latest ideas on the latest ideas, go to that place. I don't know how they do it, but they keep coming up with this stuff that solves problems. I was telling the men last night about one of my favorite innovators, George Washington Carver. He's a black boy born into slavery in the United States. He was raised by a kindly owner called Mr. Carver who taught young George how to read and write and do arithmetic, which was unusual at the time. At the age of 11, with Mr. Carver's moral support, young George Washington went in search of a school that would accept a young black boy. When he found such a school many miles from home, he put himself through primary school, secondary school, and university, college, and emerged as one of America's top chemical engineers. Time magazine many years later called him the black Leonardo, as in Leonardo da Vinci. He was such a renowned inventor. He invented many of the paints and dyes we use in the building industry to this day. He invented the basics of modern cosmetics. He invented linoleum, lino. But this is the reason I like George Washington Carver. He invented peanut butter. <laughs> Are there any other friends of George in the house? So the next time you're standing on a lino floor in your kitchen, eating a peanut butter sandwich, wearing makeup, guys, <laughs> remember George Washington Carver who said, as a Christian, nature is God's way great broadcasting mediums like the radio and he's speaking to me all the time with great ideas if I will only listen to him. Now I've got to tell you, I think George Washington Carver did a lot more good for history than a lot of preachers I've met. And I'm putting my hand up here because I'm also a preacher. He had an influence. Why? Because he was innovative. He solved problems. There are people in this room today who are gifted and called to do that. Maybe you don't feel that way, but there's a problem in your workspace you could solve. You could at least have an idea. Why not just ask God, give me one idea that will help solve a problem in my workspace? Because I'm called here to express the headship of Jesus. Do you know in Mark 1, 27, the Bible says the people were so amazed with Jesus, they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. The word new there, kainos in Greek, means fresh, never seen before, totally innovative. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 11 when it says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, the words of Jesus. The word new is kainos, new, fresh, never seen before, innovative. It's an innovative covenant we have. And friends, I, I suggest to you that the new covenant, the innovative covenant, is best expressed by innovative people. What problems are there in your world that you could solve? This is why thinking is important. The other thing that we base our thinking on today is experimentation, and that, of course, is the biases of science. And I'm sure there are students of science and scientific method here today. It's the process of testing a theory and proving or disproving it. And in the digital age, most of us who know nothing about science love it because it gives us technology. And if you have a smartphone, yeah, how many of you don't have a smartphone? Interesting. How many of you don't know what a smartphone is? 
When I talk about futurism and I talk about advances in technology that are coming in the next five years, people look at me like it's all sci-fi. And then I say to them, well, Wi-Fi was sci-fi 10 years ago. How do you think your grandparents would feel about anything without a wire attached? This would spook them out. How is he doing that? (laughs) Science is wonderful. The only time Christians have any problem with science, can I say to you, is when science insists that the only truths worth knowing are those that can be proven using scientific method. Because scientific empiricism says what can't be proven can't be believed. But the Bible says sometimes, I emphasize sometimes, what can't be believed can't be proven. Noah had to build a boat before the flood. Abram had to change his name before he had a son. Publicly change his name. Exalted father became father of a multitude. And he's calling himself this in public. Hi, I'm Abraham, father of a multitude. Here's my card. And people who know him are thinking, man, he doesn't even have a dog. Sometimes, you know, an overabundance of science makes, might be as debilitating as too little science. Harvard Business School recently, and I admire Harvard Business School, it's one of the best in the world, published a, a new study, and this will really blow your mind. It blew mine. I couldn't believe it. I was stunned by this. The finding said, now wait for it, be ready to write it down. The fi- you ready? The finding was that listening to other people, Steve's writing it down, listening to other people can make you more likable. Isn't that profound? (laughs) Sometimes we need science today to tell us the blindingly obvious. Sometimes we give science too much credence. In July of this year, Cambridge University published a study in which it said, quote, more than 50% of scientific papers contain exaggerated claims, unquote. We forget sometimes that scientists are human beings too. They're as prone to make mistakes as the rest of us. That's why we get different studies about the same thing with different conclusions. I'm not bagging science, far from it. Science is very important. It's a God-given gift. Good servant, not necessarily great master, is what I'm saying. And it has given us a new way of thinking. And a new way of thinking says that basically, if you can do a thing, you should do it. Now, not all science believes this, but there's a school within science that says, if the technology exists to do something, you should get on with doing it. We're not against science as Christians. We sometimes call for a pause to think about the future implications of present technologies, lest we build faster and faster machines to take us nowhere. We're not against science, but sometimes we might say, hey, progress is good, but progressivism isn't. Progressivism is the worship of progress. It's saying all change is necessarily good change. God designed us, ladies and gentlemen, to learn through education, experience, and experimentation. But he, learned, he wants us to learn on another level too, and we'll finish with that in a moment. The second thing that Babylon took, are you still with me? Thank you to those three kind people. I'm going to do it anyway. Language. Language fascinates me way people use language. French. (laughs) It's a soft, sort of feminine, romantic language. German. 
It's a man's language. It takes a soft word like fellowship. I love it when English people say that. Say the word fellowship. You see, it's music. Fellowship. In German, Gemeinschaft. <laughs> we have a good Gemeinschaft, yeah? <laughs> well, you have a Gemeinschaft. I'll have fellowship. Thanks. Sir. I'm happy with fellowship. Language is, is, is an interesting thing, but here it doesn't just mean the words we use. It means how we relate to other people because in God's order, language is the thing that sets up relationships. Think about all the words that have changed in technology in the last 10 years. The words that digital has given us as a language, words like download, upload, screensaver, website, cyber, email, e-learning, techie, SMS, text message, wiki, search engine, ringtone, blog, vlog, tweet, hacktivist, podcast, Skype, emoticon, spyware, webcom, webcam, dot com, couch server, newsgroup, VoIP, high tech, Wi-Fi, Google, iPad, iPhone. Think about all the old words that have taken on new meanings, spam. <laughs> Cookies. <laughs> Tablet. Take your tablet, see me in the morning. What? <laughs> Mouse. Menu. Drone. Net. Avatar. Desktop. Reboot. Some words shouldn't go together in any language. Health food, McDonald's. <laughs> Country and music. Does anybody here actually like country music? <laughs> Jesus can heal that. <laughs> artificial and real, two words that shouldn't go together. But now we use it artificial reality all the time. It's completely changed our language. But it's also changing the way we relate to each other. 2,000 people two years ago were surveyed in Britain 2% of that 2,000 said, yes, I have insulted somebody online that I didn't know this year. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, 2% of 2,000, but if you extrapolate across the entire population of Britain, that's 2 million people being insulted by 2 million other people they don't even know. It's not the technology that's the problem. The technology is amoral. It's not right or wrong. It's how we use it that counts. I believe in social media. But if my social media accounts went offline tomorrow, would I still have any friends? Have a conversation. What? Have a conversation. You want to out-influence Babylon? Talk to people. Really? I'll tell you why. When you walk, you all have a unique pattern for walking. It's called the science of biometrics, the study of how people move. The way you throw a ball physiologically also has a different pattern to the person next to you when they throw a ball. The person next to you might throw like that. Some of the guys I've met, they like that. <laughs> but they might throw like boom, like that. Every individual on earth throws a ball a different way. Did you know that? It puts a different spin on it. When you throw out an idea in conversation, you put your spin on it, someone throws it back, they've got their spin on it. That's how innovation is born. Use the technology, but make sure it's your servant.
I'm going to say a little bit about that tonight and we'll have some fun with it. Fun? Yeah. Why not? The other thing that Babylon tried to take from Daniel was his identity, his name. And not just any name. You see, in the Bible times, in the Old Testament, they didn't just pull names out of a name book. Frederick, I like the name Frederick, sounds good. Let's use Frederick. The names always had significance. They usually carried the Hebrew names for God. Daniel. El is a name for God in the Old Testament. Daniel. Hananiah. Yah, J-A-H, is a name for God in the Hebrew Old Testament. Mishael. Azariah. They all have God's name in them. It's part of their identity and who they are under God. But Babylon tries to separate them from that. It turns Daniel into Belshazzar, which meant keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel. Bel is another word for what is called in the Semitic, the Jewish languages, Baal. So here's Daniel, God is my judge, that's what it means, becomes keeper of the hidden treasures of Baal. Hananiah, the grace of the Lord, becomes Shadrach, the inspiration of the sun, because Chaldeans, Babylonians, worship the sun. Mishael, he that is the strong God, I like that name, becomes Meshach of the goddess Shark. That's Venus, the worship of the planet Venus in the astrological system. Azariah, the Lord is a help, becomes Abednego, which means servant of the shining fire, because Babylonians also worshipped fire. And if you let it, Babylon, that we live in today, will do the same thing to us. It will strip away our identity under God as a covenant people through Christ and substitute our identity with something else. And, you know, different sections of society do that all the time. Marketers define us by the products we use. Economists define us by the money we earn. Scientists define us by our place within the physical world of cause and effect. Politicians Define us by our response to a series of issues or ideologies. Educators often define us by the extent of our knowledge on a specific subject. Religion defines us by adherence to dogma. Facebook defines you by the sum total of your data, which doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the Zuck. Can I just say you are not a product, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Google, doesn't matter. You're not a product of the data about you on the internet. Don't Google yourself and say that's who I am. It's not. You can't be reduced to the ones and zeros of binary code because you are made in the image of an awesome God who cannot be reduced to the ones and zeros of binary code. Our lack of identity comes at a cost. Our lack of identity under God comes at a cost. Whatever side you voted for in Brexit is of no concern to me. But what is of concern to me, that Britain has a great future, I believe, and I've said it on the BBC many times, we have a great future. We've got great innovators in this country. But listen, we will never become more confident in our, as confident as we could be if we don't stop apologising for the strengths of our past and start using them as a platform for our future. And one of those strengths is the Judeo-Christian worldview that gave us such a liberal democracy in the first place. We need to keep our spiritual identity as Christians alive. We need to keep our identity away from Babylon. Daniel's story began with Babylon stripping him of his identity. It didn't end that way. Why? Because Daniel was a man of revelation. And I'll tell you two things as I close about Revelation. Here's one. 
I said before, we're meant to learn through education and experimentation, but there's another way, too, that we're also meant to learn, and that's revelation. Revelation isn't always understood when it's first received. It's not irrational. It's supra-rational. It's not always understood when you first get it. The Lord tells me to do something. Why, why am I doing that? Joel didn't understand, Joel chapter 2. The Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. The Spirit was just for the Jews. Why is he writing that? But he wrote it anyway. And here we are today. Daniel didn't understand the end times when he wrote Daniel's chapter 9 to 12. But he wrote it anyway. And by the way, anyone that tells you they understand fully what Daniel was on about is lying because we won't know until we're there. Then we will say, oh, the code is broken. Thank you, Father, that you were ahead of the times. That's encouraging. That gives us the courage to go forward because the future's in your hands. John didn't understand Revelation when he wrote it. Come on. We don't understand it fully today. We do know that the key to Revelation is not the end times, but Jesus. See, when you went to school... Did anybody here go to school? I see people nodding, that's good. This is how we learn in school, and it's valid. It's education. Hear a thing, understand it, do it. But revelation works differently. Hear a thing, do it, understand it. Maybe. And revelation doesn't come in words. Deuteronomy 8 says, Human beings, men and women, shall not live on material things alone, but every word proceeding from the mouth of God, except in the Hebrew original of that verse, there's no word for word. What it actually says is more like this, Men and women shall not live on material things alone, but every proceeding forth from the mouth of God. You say, what's the difference? It's a big difference. Revelation doesn't come in words. It comes in intuitions. You know that time when you were praying for someone and you didn't know what to pray for and suddenly you just kind of knew that you had to pray for this. And later on you found out from that person that's exactly what they needed. That's how revelation works. It's an intuition. It's how did I know that? I'm certain of it, but I don't know how I knew it. And you add words to explain it. It doesn't come in words. So why is that important? Because, excuse me, I thought it was a seat. Because some people confuse others with their words. and their way of presenting revelation. <laughs> oh. I like it when that happens. There's always one in the front row that goes, oh, <laughs> cardiac arrest. Oh, there it is. Did you feel that? Come on, did you feel that? Oh, there it is. <laughs> I perceive in my spirit Yea, verily, the Lord would say unto thee, I perceive it. Yea, I, the Lord, would say unto thee, 
There was a guy, this is true, a guy in northern Australia, could only happen in Australia, in the north. He stood up, this is true, in a session, in a big meeting. He said, I, the Lord, and he went on, yea, verily, I, the Lord, would say, yea, I say unto thee, my people, I've forgotten, and sat down. <laughs> it's like God forgot what he wanted to say. God was having a bad day, you know. Do you honestly think Jesus carried on that way? The Bible says sinners were drawn to Jesus. They didn't run for the hills with a siren saying, holy man approaching, run for the hills. He, he just talked. And yet what he said was so profound, it still changes the world today. He meets a woman at a well, she's there with a bucket for water. What does he say? Something really deep and spiritual. Give me a drink. And he doesn't do a, I see in my spirit that you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Now you might see that in some parts of so-called Christian TV, but that's not Jesus. He just talks to people. You try doing what a televangelist does with someone at work tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to pray for you right now in Jesus. <laughs> They're going to lay hands on you, poof, <laughs> suddenly. Just talk to them. Overcoming Babylon is not about being super spiritual. You know, some of us need to do what God did and become human for a while. Do you agree? Just talk. Hey, you know, I mean, I mean praying. I hope you don't mind. I'm a Christian. You know that. I pray for you all the time. Don't be offended. It's, it's a good thing. And... I just want to tell you that as I've been praying for you these last couple of months, I felt I should encourage you with a simple word, simple line, simple sentence. And someone th looks at you as if, how did you know that? You say, what if I do that and nothing happens? Well, what if you do that and something does? You see, Babylon is overcome through revelation. Yes, through guarding Language, the way we communicate, the way we build relationships, literature, the way ideas come to us, making sure that we love God with our minds above all else. Our names, making sure that Babylon doesn't take our identity. But it's overcome primarily through being people of revelation. Hearing from a part of the universe Babylon can't reach. Father, we thank you today for your word. It's an honor to speak to these lovely people and thank you that everyone in this room is called a special calling the Bible says that we were designed for good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and I pray that we will Father have more influence on our culture than it has on us in the way we relate to others in the way we formulate ideas in who we are and our sense of our identity. Help us to be people of revelation who hear from heaven on a regular basis without being flaky or two feet off the ground just to be real like Jesus and yet hear from heaven. And for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, we simply pray this morning that they will say the most powerful word in any language to the most powerful friend leader and Lord they will ever know that 
they will say the word yes. 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 The word that unlocks all those doors in life. Yes. Yes. Opens up new opportunities. Yes. That they'll say the word yes to Jesus. That they'll say, I believe you died on the cross for me, Jesus. Someone needed to take the pain that I've caused and had caused to me. Someone needed to take that. And you did on the cross. And three days later, you rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God sent that same Spirit to live in me from this moment forward. I pray that they'll do that in Jesus' name.